Experience Bioneers with a ticket to our 2016 National Conference, October 21st to the 23rd, in San Rafael, California. To register and learn more, visit conference.bioneers.org. This week on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Every living thing out there is as important as my life and as necessary to defend as my children's lives. If you felt like that, this would be a vastly different society. I'm Neil Harvey. This week we explore indigenous peace technologies, the ancient art of getting along, on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. Support for The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is provided in part by Organic Valley Family of Farms, funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, and by the generous support of listeners like you. These people have a great deal to bring to Americans and to the West, and most of it has to do with these ancient methods of getting along. Algonquins, in general, take pride in being an ancient source of knowledge about conflict resolution. And it's very basic to our culture, and we call it the way of the heron. The elders say that the herons will see other birds fighting and it will intervene and stop them from fighting. Our uh, people have tools that were developed to maintain community, to sustain community, and to create ways in which we can become community. Ecology is the fine art of relationships, the weaving of life's vastly intricate living tapestry of interdependence. What we do to the earth, we do to ourselves. But equally important, what we do to each other, we do to the earth. Human conflict has long ravaged the land, and today's industrialized high-tech warfare could spell large-scale annihilation. How can we resolve human conflict nonviolently? In this program, we look at how three indigenous peoples have learned to resolve conflicts. In most cases, these peace technologies grew out of horrific experiences of transgenerational war, vengeance, and atrocities as brutal as anything we face today. Join us for the next half hour as we explore indigenous peace technologies, the ancient art of getting along. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. When Europeans first set foot in the Americas, they marveled at finding indigenous societies without prisons. They wondered why the peoples they encountered were largely peaceful and even unarmed. They did not know that there had been great wars. They did not know that, like people everywhere, indigenous societies had struggled mightily with violent conflict and injustice. They had no idea that many of these societies had worked for generations— to find ways to turn down the violence, to resolve conflict through a sophisticated set of hard-earned peace technologies. In this program, we hear from leaders of three Native communities, from Canada, Okanagan mediators Jeanette Armstrong and Marlo Sam, from New York, Evan Pritchard, a mixed-blood Mi'kmaq researcher of Algonquin history and customs, and from the Kalahari Desert region of Namibia, San Bushman Go Goma, and the coordinator of the Kalahari People's Fund, Megan Beasley. Their stories offer insights into pre-conquest land-based cultures, 
which, before contact with Western societies, were remarkably self-sustaining. These are stories of how healthy, long-term communities stay healthy and stay together. The idea of community for us as Okanagans means that we're in this together. We are all we have got to be able to survive. We are all that is there that keeps us alive. Jeanette Armstrong is an award-winning Okanagan-Canadian author and artist, the executive director of the Anaukan International School of Writing and Arts. She's a council member of the Traditional Knowledge Council of the Okanagan Nation. All that is there that keeps us alive, that gives us our survival, is our family and our community and the land, the relatives that give us their lives so that we can live. As soon as I say those words, the idea of what land is transforms in your mind. The idea of what community is transforms in your mind. If you are all you got, whether it's a hundred people or a thousand people, every one of those lives is going to be precious. Every one of those people in terms of how they feel and what they think is going to be extremely important because you're going to need to depend on them. You're going to need to collaborate with them. You're going to need their help and their assistance when you're faced with something that the whole community is threatened with. That every individual and every living thing out there is as important as my life and as necessary to defend as my children's lives. If you felt like that, this would be a vastly different society. No person, animal, or plant is expendable. All deserve and need to be cared for. Each member is essential to the health of the whole group. These beliefs are the foundation of indigenous justice and ways of resolving conflicts. For traditional Native communities, there was no away to throw people to. Banishment and extreme penalty often meant death, since being with the group was essential to survival. There were highly prescribed codes and laws of acceptable and unacceptable behavior, but the primary approach to breaches was transformation, not punishment. Except in the most extreme cases, the community embraced, or more accurately, engulfed the offender. The Algonquins had their own justice system, the way of the heron. Evan T. Pritchard is a descendant of the Algonquin Mi'kmaq tribe, the founder of the Center for Algonquin Culture and professor of Native American history at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. He's the author of No Word for Time, The Way of the Algonquin People. For murders, there was options, one of which was capital punishment, but if somebody killed one of your relatives, you could basically say, I forgive you, which was hard to do. Or you could say, well, give me 100 beaver pelts and I'll, you know, we'll let you go, you know. Or another is which that person became part of your family and did the work that the one who was murdered did. Okay? And this was actually very common, is that the murderer would be adopted into the family and would be somewhat of a, you know, a servant in the household for several years. 
and uh, would do the work of the person who is deceased, and then they would be free to leave or to stay as a beloved member of the family. Okay? And of course, this was very difficult. This was one of the options. In Canada, this notion of the community engaging the violator rather than discarding him or her to a distant prison is being revived. It's a movement toward restorative justice. Again, Evan Pritchard. They're using this on reservations today in Canada, restorative justice movement, and that is they, for example, that some native boys found an ice fishing house. It was a, as a fishing station, and they burned them just because they had nothing better to do and they were angry, you know, at something. And the owners of the fishing houses were very upset, and rather than send them to jail, which they could have done, they elected for restorative justice, and they had the boys sit in the courtroom, and they brought out all the people who had grown up with that fishing house and talked about how much they loved the fishing house and how they cried when they heard it was burned down. And the boys were just amazed that anybody cared, you know. And they brought some out, some really old guy who had built it or something, and they were crying. And they talked about, you know, how you know, much they love these fishing houses and that it's, you know, there's a certain skill involved in making. And they said to the boys, would you like to learn how to build a fishing house? And these three or four hoodlums, little boys, said yes, they would. And they got together and the old men taught the boys how to build things and they built fishing houses. You know, I just heard the story a couple of years ago on the reservation, but this is the old ways. You know, this is conflict resolution. This is native justice. It has to do with continually rebuilding our infrastructure in, in, in our hearts, the infrastructure of our hearts. You know, In restorative justice, every conflict in our lives, as long as people cooperate, there is a way, there is a solution. Evan Pritchard. My name is Ko. I'm from Namibia. Ko Goma is a Juan San representative. He's a program manager for the Nainai Conservancy, which helps manage traditional San lands in the Nainai region. The San, or Bushmen, are one of the most ancient peoples in the world. They've lived in the same area for over 25,000 years. To get a sense of how the Kalahari Bushmen deal with conflict, we must first recognize two cornerstones of their communities. One, they highly respect the elders in the community. Age and experience are valued assets. In our culture... Normally, our elders will explain us how, when we, we, we start growing up, they will tell us how you have to react to an a person, elder person. If there's a conflict between individuals and two households, the elders of those households get together to talk about it. My father, we come to visit this household to see how, what is going on and what happened to these people and so on. And then you, you start talking to the, the elder person in that house and see what is it the solution of these two problems. The second cornerstone in Bushman communities is a very deep-seated sense of equality. There are leveling traditions that undermine individual pride, a sense of rank, privilege, or specialness. I saw that people were very, very careful never to make themselves bigger than anybody else in that culture, and that that has huge ramifications. It's a culture that is fiercely egalitarian, I guess you would say. This egalitarian ethos is reinforced in hundreds and hundreds of ways all the time, through the songs, through the stories, through the way children are brought up, and so forth. 
Megan Beasley is the coordinator of the Kalahari People's Fund. Here she gives an example of how leveling works among the San. She was there when a young man named Kumi brought back meat from his first successful hunt. Well, I thought he would then become a lauded hero. Instead, what did I find? I find that his mother, his grandmother, and all of his relatives in the camp said, Oh, Kumi, this is a scrawny piece of meat you've brought home. This is just terrible. You know, can't you do any better than this? And he also didn't have the right to pass the meat out or distribute it because it turned out that his grandmother, who was blind, was the owner of that arrow, and she had loaned it to him and had asked him to hunt for her. So she was the owner of the meat, and she was the one who was able to pass it around. So I was watching Kumi out of the corner of my eye during this whole interchange, which went on over a couple of days, and I thought, you know, surely his feelings are going to be hurt. Surely he's going to feel belittled. But on the contrary, this young man seemed to have grown at least a foot while this was happening. His eyes were sparkling, and I had no idea what was going on. And what I realized later is that this was their way of acknowledging that he was just one person among a group, all of whom needed the protein from that killed animal, and that if he puffed himself up in any way, then he would not be able to hunt as well in the future. So they insulted the meat, they insulted him, they brought him down a peg or two off of a potential boastfulness that he might have been into, and he was able to bring the social fabric of his group forward. He had that wonderful effect. His, his killing that animal had that wonderful effect, and it also was part of his growing up. Megan Beasley. Leveling individual pride and honoring elders in the Kalahari, embracing mistakes or violations with restorative justice among the Algonquin, these stories paint pictures of communities that value each member dearly, communities designed to stay together for the long haul. None of this is abstract or quaint, even in today's world. In 2006, the San Bushmen prevailed after a long struggle with the government of Botswana. Their legal victory restored their right to live, hunt, and travel on their traditional lands. They marshaled their ancient peace technologies along with modern legal strategies to restore justice. When we return, what mediators Jeanette Armstrong and Marlo Sam did when faced with an armed standoff between natives and the Canadian government over Okanagan religious land use rights. This is Indigenous Peace Technologies, the ancient art of getting along. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. To hear more from our recordings on Native Justice, you can download free podcasts at Bioneers.org. Now we go from Africa to Canada, 
1995, Native Canadians of the Shushwap tribe found themselves in conflict with a rancher over protection of a spiritually vital Sundance grounds. The rancher had a license to graze his cattle on land sacred to the Shushwap, Jeanette Armstrong. The rancher had a grazing license. Um, he didn't own the property, but he was licensed to graze his cattle there by the province. And he wanted the Indians off of that land so he could continue grazing his cattle. Anger in the Native community from generations of being disrespected and displaced collided with anti-Indian sentiment. There was the deeply racist attitude that, um, you know, we'd rather kill these Indians than uh, let them be right. We'd rather make sure the cows have their right to graze and for the rancher and make money for the rancher before these Indians in their Sundance and their religion. An armed standoff resulted between natives and the Canadian military and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP. A month into the struggle, Jeanette Armstrong and Marlo Sam, both experienced in conflict resolution, were asked to come to the conflict zone. We were asked, you know, to start mediating. Marlo Sam is a member of the Colville Confederated Tribe. He's a facilitator of the Four Societies Process Method, a traditional form of community conflict resolution and consensus building. In the mediation process, I think on the second day we were there, Jeanette and the group were going in. And before they even got in there, the Army blew up a truck, you know, and they end up shooting, you know, a girl in the arm and... Uh, a big shootout there for two and a half hours. The firepower, you know, was pretty heavy. You know, they had 50 caliber machine guns and 30 caliber machine guns, you know, and all the light arms that the military uses, you know. And there was enough firepower that they were shooting, literally shooting trees down. From a situation that wasn't too bad, all of a sudden it was really volatile at that point, you know, where we were really concerned that these nuts are going to go in there and kill these people, you know, massacre them. Jeanette Armstrong. The process that we use in, in facilitating uh, conflict resolution comes from a traditional process in our community of decision-making. And in that process of decision-making, there is the idea that I'm here to try to understand where your thinking is coming from. If I can't understand where your thinking is coming from, there's not much hope of resolving the problem. So I need to hear the most opposite opinion to mine in order to be informed, and vice versa. You need the same thing. And so in terms of the um, peace technologies, I think conflict needs to be thought about in a different way. It needs to be thought about in a way which informs us, and it needs to be thought about in a way which tells us what is it that we are not doing, what is it that we are not being responsible for and not doing properly, what am I doing wrong, in other words, not what you're doing wrong. At the standoff, the Canadian military charged the Shushwap camp of men, women, and children with an Army personnel carrier. Shushwap warriors counterattacked, firing under the APC and disabled it. Emotions were running hot. Marlo Sam. On both sides, it was just stirred up, you know, pretty heavy. And so, you know, we had to really uh, focus on a situation like, how are we going to change the thinking from the inside and from the outside? 
it's something that has to emanate from you, you know, a confidence, ability to know what needs to happen in order to resolve the conflict. Where I saw the turning point is that we started working with the idea that there needed to be some understanding by the people who are involved in the external part of the conflict, the RCMP and the military and um, all of their advisors. One of the problems with the way that that kind of standoff is handled is that it's handled by the book. As I put more and more pressure on them, squeeze them and squeeze them, take all these different privileges away and create more and more hardship, and eventually they're going to come up and surrender. That doesn't work in many situations. All that it does is dig the trench deeper and actually creates the possibility where um, death will you know, be inevitable. So that part was really clear to us that that's the direction it was going. So one of the things we needed to do was to be able to humanize those people that were inside and, w and what they stood for and what they were there for. We were continuously talking with the elders to find out where they were at. And so one of their clear understandings was the people that are dealing with them know nothing about Indian religion or belief or spirituality or any of those practices. So one of our uh, suggestions was to bring a, a holy man. On their invitation, the revered holy man Orville Looking Horse came to the site and spoke with the natives inside and the Canadian military outside. You could feel his presence when he spoke to the uh, RCMP. You could feel their shift in attitude. You couldn't help it but feel it because of the soft, gentle calm way that he spoke. He just calmed everyone inside. And, and I really could feel that shift internally in, in many of them that were there. So I was observing and watching how they were thinking. Every day that we'd see them, we'd greet them and uh, talk to them. And in the end, some of those RCMP were, they became almost like family. You could feel their heart changing and you could feel them changing inside. It wasn't a matter of arguing with them or forcing them. It was a matter of them having their feelings changed inside, having their understanding changed inside. And I think that part is the most difficult part in a conflict resolution situation because that's what you hope happens. If that can happen, then you have some ability to move things. And at the same time, you had to do the same thing inside. You had to move those people who had dug in and who were angry and who were hurt, angry for good reasons, you know, and hurt for good reasons, move them as well to the point where they could find within themselves the ability to say, we can walk out of here and we haven't lost. We can walk out of here and we've made our point. We can walk out of here and we've changed some understanding. And that's important for our children, that's important for our people, and important for this land. It's a real consensus-based technology. Sometimes it can even be uh, unwilling or unknowing consensus, you know, like the RCMP and psychology, they didn't know what happened to them. They didn't know 
other than something, some sort of dynamic was going on that was working, and and, and they felt it. I know they felt, you know, the uh, uh, because it's a real powerful, uplifting feeling, you know, and uh, that's what we have here. That's what's from our land. Them technologies are here. That's what's ours on this land, and it's still alive. After the people all came out, one of the pictures on one of the national newspapers was Marlowe and the head RCMP just hugging each other, you know, because they were so happy, you know, that it didn't end in bloodshed. Nobody died. That, to me, was real revealing in terms of how much can be done in a short amount of time with that kind of process, with that kind of technology. A lot of the violence, a lot of the jails, a lot of the wars, you know, they're unnecessary, really, if you understand these techniques. It would be good to bring back these techniques, but the people as a whole have to really be receptive. We have to realize we all do live together on this planet, and we're going to have to depend on each other because those illusory safety nets we thought we had are disappearing one by one. Megan Beasley, Evan Pritchard, Jeanette Armstrong, Marlo Sam, and Go Goma. Stories of the fine art of relationships, the ancient technology of getting along. Restorative justice, deep listening, embracing of the most diverse voices, humanizing the other, honoring elder wisdom, turning to each other as equals turning again, generation after generation, to love as the center of community. The technologies for peace coming from the land are alive and available to us all. Indigenous peace technologies, the ancient art of getting along. To find the latest resources related to this program or to order a copy of this show, visit Bioneers.org or call 877-246-6337. Practical solutions and social innovations for our most pressing environmental and social challenges can also be found online at Bioneers.org. Choose from articles, news releases, blogs, event calendars, books, CDs, podcasts, and DVDs. You can learn more about the Bioneers through their annual conference and by becoming a member. To register and join online, go to Bioneers.org or call 877-246-6337. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel and Neil Harvey. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Interview recording engineer, Erica Bridgman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko disc label. Additional music was made available by Silver Wave Records at silverwave.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. 
My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in improving the environment by changing the world. This is program number 0607. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley's pasture-raised organic dairy products, bringing the good from our family farmers to your table at organicvalley.coop. Funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, and by the generous support of listeners like you.